doing well? Got a similar response this morning. <laughs> More chatter. All right. So we're going to be um, continuing looking through the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, um, verse 23. If you've got your Bibles, you can open it. Oh. <laughs> Dave was here this morning. I ran out of space and I sort of had this awkward moment. So look at this. Everyone give Dave a round of applause. Thank you very much. I'll get some more. <laughs> Two should be plenty. Yeah, it's getting a bit, um, not much space. So Mark chapter 2, um, verse 23. But before I read it, I'm going to open in prayer. Heavenly Father, I, I, do, I do thank you for your word, Lord. You know how my life is indebted to what we are now opening, to how you've used it to form me, to change me, to open my eyes, uh, to rebuke me, to convict me, to correct me, to encourage me, to be able to teach and uplift others. And uh, Lord, I thank you that right now this is the book that we are opening. There is no other book that I would like to open here but this one that has impacted me so deeply. And I pray that tonight that its impact would continue to go forth, which is truly done by the work of your Spirit, Lord. It is called the sword of your Spirit. So I ask now that your sword would go forward into our lives, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, Father, cleaving off what is not of you and revealing, Lord, what um, remains and where you have done your work in our lives through Jesus Christ. Thank you for what we received in him. Amen. Amen. All right. So I'll just read through the passage and we're going to go into chapter 3. I know it's a strange thing when you start in one chapter and you're going through the next one. I always find it strange anyway. So Mark chapter 2 verse 23. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields and as they made their way his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. I'm just going to adjust this because I'm feeling I'm scraping on my cheek here. So, um, before we kind of dive into this passage here, I just wanted to draw two things that have happened in the preceding kind of opening of Mark. And both of them are increases. One you really see, you can really see through chapter 1, and this is the increase in the popularity of Christ. The first kind of opening, nobody really knows about Jesus, a man from Nazareth, not much to remark, 
But you see this sort of increase, his frame spreads for the whole region of Galilee. He starts to have people line up at his house in the evenings. He goes through from village to village and he gets to the point where it's so hard even to enter a village. And then um, by the end of chapter 1, we're reading that even out in desolate places, people were coming to him from every quarter. I don't know if you've ever had that problem. You went out, you know, to the bush or went camping and all these people came out seeking you. But Jesus had that problem or that challenge. So you see that there's this increase in his popularity among the people, okay? Then in chapter 2, there's another increase, but it's of a different sort. The increase in chapter 2 and and flows into verse 3 is around the opposition or, um, yeah, this sort of opposition against Christ. So you see it, it starts in a very subtle way and it gets louder and louder and louder as we make our way through chapter 2. So you see um, chapter 2, this is verse 6 and 7, that the scribes are questioning him in their hearts. They don't verbalize it, but Jesus draws it out because he knows what they're thinking. It's just in their hearts. They don't verbalize or articulate what their thoughts are, but they're questioning him. Then later on in the next passage, um, where he's sitting with sinners and tax collectors, verse 16, it says um, that they... um, we're eating with sinners and tax collectors, and they say to his disciples, so it comes out of the heart, but they don't approach Jesus directly. They kind of go to his friends. You know when it's hard to confront someone over something, you think, I'll just tell their friend, you know? So you see that it's beginning to be expressed out through the mouth now. Then, um, 2 verse 18, they asked Jesus to, directly. People came to him and said to him. So they're now questioning Jesus very directly. Again, you see the kind of crescendo in the heart, then kind of indirectly through his disciples. Now they're directly questioning him. And then in the passage we've just read, they ask Jesus again directly. The question is, look, why are they doing, talking about the disciples, what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And it struck me just this one word, look. I thought, how do you know the tone of this question? And I feel the word look gives it away. Because you could think, this is just could be a genuine interest, you know. Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath, like out of curiosity? But the word look, I feel it it triggers this thing. There's sort of two ways it it could be taken, the word look. One, you know when um, uh, an old man is is telling off a young boy, now look here, son, and there's this sort of, you know, I really need to highlight this to you. I'm bringing this to your attention. I'm underlining it. And there's this sort of, it, it could be seen to be underlining all the other thing that they could be doing there is saying, look, can't you see what's in front of your eyes? Like these people are right with you. They're your disciples. Look, open your eyes. And so it could be either of them. I don't really know. But either way, there's this sort of antagonism beginning to grow. It's not just a simple question. It's like, I'm telling you that I'm disagreeing with what's happening. So again, it's this... Um, that's scratching still here, isn't it? Um, I don't know if you're hearing that, but I am. <laughs> no? No one can hear that? No, oh, that's good. Still here for me. All right, so there's this gent, this increase in um, the antagonism and the opposition towards Jesus. And then in chapter 3, it becomes increasingly overt where they go into the Sabbath and they're watching very particularly, looking for something to which they can accuse Jesus of. And when they find it, they grab it. And verse 6, they go out and try and decide with a group of people, Herodians, it says immediately how to destroy him. So you see these two sort of increases, increase in popularity, increase in opposition and disagreement. 
kind of playing into, uh, coming into the background of um, where we're looking this evening. But what we're going to do now, um, I'm going to go through the passage and look at the heart of the Pharisees and try and unpack what, what's, what's playing into their questions, what's playing into the decisions they're making, and then we'll go through it again and then look at the heart of Jesus. So they come to Jesus um, with this question. Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And um, I've um, been looking into this. I'll also tell you, I'm going to be flicking around the Bible a bit. Feel free to follow me. Don't feel like you have to. Um, And if you're like, oh, I'd like to get that verse, I didn't get it, feel free to come and ask me later. But um, this is from Deuteronomy chapter 23, and it speaks very specifically about what the disciples were doing. It's a very specific Uh, command from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy uh, 23 and verse 25, it says this, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So it was completely fine what they were doing under the old covenant, it just didn't mention if it was fine on the Sabbath or not, which is really what is disputing, Um, the Pharisees are disputing. But then... Um, we have a look um, earlier in Deuteronomy when the Sabbath is unpacked in the Ten Commandments in chapter 5 and we can really hear the heart of God in giving the Sabbath. Uh, Deuteronomy 5 verse 12, this is uh, the command about the Sabbath. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God on it you shall not do any work. And it goes on to mention, neither you, nor your son, nor your daughter, not even your animals should be working, your oxen, just you. So we're seeing that the heart of the Sabbath is around resting, not working. You work in this, in this period, and then on uh, the Sabbath day you take rest. And there's no place in the Old Testament where it specifically says, you shall not pick grain heads on the Sabbath. So it leads the question, why were these men saying that they shouldn't have been doing this on the Sabbath? And um, I'll kind of, we'll, we'll be going into this a bit more, but it's, it's really a, a playing out uh, of the heart of what's happening within this question that they're posing and the way that they're, they're confronting Jesus and his disciples. But around this time, there was this increasing um, thing that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were doing, which we see throughout the Gospels, and that was they were writing laws that were not found in the Old Testament in order to protect against the Old Testament laws being violated. So there's a a Jewish um, writing called the Mishnah, and a lot of these sayings that were around orally in the time of Jesus were collected and collated in the Mishnah, and uh, I read that there's um, sort of whole pages devoted to keeping the Sabbath in this uh, writing called the Mishnah. But uh, one of the things it says is about, you know, you should not harvest on the Sabbath day. And it seems that that's probably the closest thing that um, the Pharisees could be disputing here, that they were probably harvesting by picking up grains (laughs) on the Sabbath. Honestly, I'm just laughing because this is ridiculous. (laughs) It is really ridiculous. I was thinking about this and I thought, how can you say that picking up grain is working and it shouldn't be done on the Sabbath if the heart of the Sabbath is rest? And I was thinking about the Pharisees and I thought, these guys have lifted things that are way heavier than grains on that day. For sure they did. They weren't naked, they were dressed. 
They were in their clothes, and their clothes were much heavier than those grains that those uh, disciples were picking. And there they come out, and they're refuting these people and saying, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Yet, under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, there's no specific command against us, against that. And it, it's, it just sounds so ridiculous, and it's the expression of what's happening inside. Now, the thing about a Pharisee and a disciple of Christ, a true disciple, is they can look the same on the outside, but it's what's inside that makes the difference. So both of them are desiring obedience to the law of God, to fulfill God's commandments. A Pharisee desires to be obedient, a disciple of Christ desires to be obedient. But the question is why? And this is when it's important to discern the difference in our lives and the lives of the people around us, but first and foremostly, using the help of the Holy Spirit, of His Word, to discern in our lives the difference between the two. Because we can think that we're doing a great job keeping all these commandments and perhaps not realize that it's actually coming from the same heart that the Pharisees had, rather than from the heart of a genuine disciple of Christ. So how do you know the difference? Well, a Pharisee is really motivated by kind of this underlying thing of, I want to be right, I want to do what is right. And that's really coming from a place of pride. It's, it's looking at, at the self, at what you can do, what you can, can accomplish and achieve, and saying, I'm going to be right no matter what it takes. I'm going to get everything right, dot all the I's, cross all the T's, and nail this thing. I can do it. Whereas a disciple, it, a disciple looks at the commands of Christ and says, man, all those things are full on. Those are tough. But you know what? I want to do it. Why? Because I love Jesus. Jesus himself expressed that in John. This is from chapter 14 and uh, verse 23. He says this, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Simple as that. If anyone loves me, he will what? Keep my word. He'll be obedient. And why? Because he loves me. You can see there the heart of the disciple in keeping the commandments. And I said this this morning, but I just encourage you as you know, I'm working through this and speaking to you, just be listening to what the Holy Spirit um, is touching in your life. He touched different things in my life as I was preparing this, and I believe He'll be um, touching things in your life. Just listen to Him and work with Him. Don't shy away. So, there's this difference that is expressed in the Pharisee and the disciple in obedience. So, if we move along now to the next sort of, um, what would you call it? It's not a parable. The next section, the next scene in the drama of Jesus' life, which is this amazing drama. Looking at the Pharisees, again, they have this accusation. (laughs) Again, I'm laughing. It is just absurd, absurd. Both of these things are so absurd. But they come, um, verse 2, and they're watching Jesus to see whether He will heal on the Sabbath, okay? Now, I want you to imagine these people are trying to accuse Jesus. And later on in Mark, we read how they ended up in front of Pilate and they're giving an accusation against Jesus to try and get Him killed by Pilate, right? I want you to imagine, they don't do this, but I want you to imagine they bring this accusation that they're trying to nail on Jesus. Now, look, Pilate, you should put that man to death because he healed someone on the day when he should have been resting. That's absurd, isn't it? How ridiculous does that sound? (laughs) 
I don't, I don't know, even the most like corrupt judge, I mean, they probably would, they'd, they'd do that at a bargain, but I don't know how you'd try and put someone to death for that. But this is exactly what these people are doing. Is this crazy? Is it just me? I think this is crazy. This is fully crazy. And what's going on? Again, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's, it's coming from within. So we'll dig deeper into what's going on. Where is this craziness coming from? So you look at, let's look first at, at what Jesus did when he healed the man. He did this. He said to the man, come here. The man walked up in front of him. He then said to the man, stretch out your hand. So let's count these words. Come here, stretch out your hand. Oh, six words. There we go. And what did the man do? Stretched out his hand as he was healed. Now, was there a lot of effort in that? How many of you have ever witnessed a miracle before or have ever had a miracle of healing in your life? Did the person praying for you, you know, for that miracle just, okay, and oh, this is so much work, you know? It's not hard to heal because it's not us who does it. It's the Lord. It's God who does the miracle. It's not our work. What happened here that was of any more work than what the Pharisees had done that day themselves? They'd open up their hands to do things. They'd probably greeted each other. Maybe they didn't shake hands back in that day. Maybe they'd had a glass of water. You know, they'd chatted with one another. How is there any more work happening here than what they'd already done? Again, crazy, crazy. Do you, do you hear the craziness? I'm seeing it. It's, this is crazy. Then, um, the Old Testament never says anything specifically saying you should not heal on the Sabbath. So where's this coming from again? And, and you see in chapter 1, verse 34, that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. This is what happens in verse 34. He has a whole crowd from the village line up in front of his house and he's healing so many people on the Sabbath. There was no opposition. Not a single Pharisee in that town blinked an eyelid as far as the Scriptures tell us. Nothing happened. But here, two chapters later in chapter 3, man, they are looking to see if he's going to heal on the Sabbath. What's changed in that time? I believe it's around the popularity of Christ, that as his popularity has increased, not that Christ was seeking popularity, not that that did anything for his ego, of course not. He didn't mind. In fact, when big crowds came, he often taught some of the hardest things. But when that popularity came, we know that the Pharisees were filled with envy. You read later on um, in Mark 15.10 that they were envious and that Pilate perceived that in them, that that is why they brought Jesus to him. It was out of envy. And John 11, um, in verse 47 and 48, it talks about how they were threatened uh, by Jesus, feeling like their place would be taken away. So you can see these sort of dynamics playing in here, this enviousness, uh, enviousness and um, this feeling of being threatened Okay, by the, Phari- the Pharisees are feeling this. And, and it made me think, um, it's funny that my mum's here tonight um, and my dad, but when we were kids, um, dad would preach... Um, and we'd come home on a Sunday afternoon, and mum and dad would be wrecked sometimes, and they just wanted to get a lie down, right? And uh, so they'd say, all right, everyone, you have to go to your rooms, and you can do whatever you want in there, but you just need a rest. Anyone else do that in their family growing up, or <laughs> as a parent, you send your kids to the bedroom? Yep. 
yeah, I had that too. And I was like, man, this is so boring. I just want to go and do something. And, and then sometimes I'd end up falling asleep anyway. <laughs> you know, classic kid denial of their own tiredness. But I want you to imagine, right, two brothers having this thing. They're sent to their rooms and one brother is upset against the other brother for whatever reason. And um, one brother, he goes into his room and he cleans his entire room. It was an absolute mess. Puts his bed back in place, all the books, toys, makes it look nice and tidy. And then the time of the rest comes out. Everyone, everyone um, kind of comes out of, the room, out of their rooms. And the brother sees what his other brother has done in packing up and cleaning his room. And he goes to his, his mother and father and says, did you see what my brother did? He wasn't resting. He was cleaning up his room when he should have been resting crazy. Can you see the same thing? Is anyone else hearing the craziness? This is crazy. Where is this coming from? Yet they're in their right minds. They're in their right minds and they're thinking like this. The parent in that illustration would have been overjoyed. (laughs) Man, you guys need to have more time resting in your rooms. That's what a great outcome. But this is exactly what um, the Pharisees are seeking to do here. Now, Jesus, um, he goes on to say to them, it is, law- is it lawful? He asks them this question in verse 4, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And of course, we all know the answer. It's like, you know, it's the questions asked and you don't even have to answer it. There's no answer given. And the answer is, it is lawful on the Sabbath to do good, It is not lawful or it is wrong on the Sabbath to do harm. And the thing is about this law is that it transcends the Sabbath Sabbath law. And what I mean by that is it is right every single day of the week to do good. It is wrong every single day of the week to do bad, whether it's the Sabbath or not. That doesn't matter. It transcends the law of the Sabbath. Jesus, in uh, Luke 14, he's having a similar situation where um, the Pharisees are opposing him for healing on the Sabbath. And he says to them at one point, who of you, if on the Sabbath, if his ox falls in a hole, will not immediately go in and rescue that ox? You're not going to wait till the next Sabbath. Or if it's your son, you immediately act and you do all this work, you know, for the ox. Not that healing is necessarily work, but there are times that it is right to violate the Sabbath, where this law transcends, it is right to do good. I was giving the illustration um, this morning, um, which was quite uh, funny because it kind of happened during the service. I'll explain to you. Um, Like a surgeon, right, who it's his day off, but someone comes in and is going to die unless they get surgery. If that surgeon said, sorry, I can't do that, it's my day off, that person is going to be culpable in the Lord of Core. Yeah, Lord of... You got what I meant. In a court of law, there's going to be... Culp- uh, they'll be culpable for that. <laughs> and that happened in the, the service this morning. Uh, uh, one of our... Probably, well, we might have a few surgeons, but Neil um, Strugnall got a phone call. He was on call and had to go and respond to that, you know, <laughs> which is a, an interesting thing. But there is this need, even on days of rest, to do what is good, to reject evil not only a need, like it is right to, it would be wrong not to. And so it's, it's the strange thing that sort of comes out that what they're trying to accuse Jesus of, of working on the Sabbath by healing, actually, they would probably be closer with finding an accusation against him if he didn't heal on the Sabbath, because it was right and good for him to heal 
as the father was leading him. There are occasions where there are many people and he only healed one. And uh, the Lord knows um, the mystery of that. But here, it was right for Jesus to heal on the Sabbath, to do good and not harm. And then you see the other thing of Jesus' words, flipping this round, right? Is that um, on one side, Jesus is doing good on the Sabbath. What are the Pharisees doing on that very same Sabbath? Evil. They're going out to plot his destruction. They're looking to accuse him. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do evil? No. You see the, how both Jesus and the Pharisees fell on either side of his words. Jesus was in the right in what he was doing. The Pharisees were in the wrong. It is not lawful on the Sabbath ever to plot someone's downfall and destruction and destroy them. Yet this is exactly what they were doing. It's, they've become so blinded to the reality of their hearts that what they're doing they believe is the right thing to do and it's crazy what they're doing and the craziness continues in verse 6 it says after Jesus had healed the man the Pharisees went out and immediately had held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him and the word immediately has come up several times in Mark and I feel it's actually a very important word in this gospel. And it's like it seems to be expressing this sort of inevitable reaction when something is in place already and it just takes one instant or one word that triggers what's already there, what's lying in the heart. And we see this, that they were waiting to accuse him. And then as soon as they had what they wanted, which of course was not only... Uh, and it was an invalid accusation, as we've been looking at. Like, there was no, it was not right to accuse Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. But as soon as they had what they thought was an accusation against Jesus, they took that, grabbed it, and immediately go to who? The Herodians. Now, there's not much known about the Herodians, but they, of course, were associated with King Herod. And um, by association with King Herod, he was um, the king over the Jews at that time although the true king had definitely come in Christ. But he was um, the king over the Jews. And what he had done a lot of was working with Rome um, to get what he was desiring among the people for his own benefit, his own gain. He was basically using Rome to empower himself to get what he wanted. And there's this really sort of twistedness there. The so the Herodians would have been sort of in this sort of stream and line. The Pharisees, however, by contrast, they're, they're seeking absolute purity in Jewish customs, in their traditions, in their teaching, in their way of life, right? So there's this contrast already with how the Herodians and the Pharisees are living. But what happens, the Pharisees immediately go to the Herodians in order to try and figure out how they can destroy Jesus all of these things that they would have been against in the Herodians' lives, that they would have not sat well with, that would have, they would have opposed, they're actually comfortable to go with and overlook those things in order to plot Jesus' downfall. All right, let's go back through and we'll now look at the heart of Christ working through, working through this. And uh, before I kick this off, I just wanted to um, make a point which uh, uh, one of my workmates, uh, who's also my friend, Mike, was saying to me, he said he was reading a book and the author was basically talking about Jesus is given not as an exception 
but as an example. Jesus is given not as an exception, but as an example. He is our example. That's a high example. But in Christ and by the power of the Spirit, we work towards that, not in our own strength. Keep that in mind as we go through this, okay? He is our example. Now, Jesus was not fearful at all of the laws uh, of the Pharisees that they have come up with. Picking grain is unlawful on the Sabbath. I want you to imagine, right, that this took place before the disciples had begun to follow Jesus and the 12 are there, or let's say it's Peter, James and John, they've just been fishing, they've walked up and they just start picking grain on the Sabbath. They would have known that this is what the Pharisees were teaching. They would have known that this was the accepted standard in the society. And imagine picking the grain and then the Pharisees coming up and confronting the 12 and saying, what are you doing? Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? I can't say for sure, but I reckon they maybe would have either floundered and not known what to say or tried to, you know, strike back, you know, like a cheap shot in what they said or responded. I don't, I don't know for sure. But what, what I do believe is that Christ, when He stands up and He disregards the laws of man and He says, I'm not afraid of that, through His actions, He doesn't necessarily have to verbalize it, but he doesn't have the fear of man, he has the fear of God and he knows what God wants and just walks that line so steadily and in the will of the Lord. Do you know what that happens? It creates a shelter around him and enables others to come up into that, to shelter the disciples that they can walk with Christ and be sheltered by his um, walking in the will of God, by his liberty that he has by not walking in the fear of man but walking in the fear of God. Jesus then, he highlights the hypocrisy that they have, uh, that the Pharisees have. In verse 25, he begins to share this account of David. I'll read it to you again briefly. Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. It's like what Jesus is saying here is you're coming and you're judging these 12 men, yet David did what was unlawful. It wasn't right for him to eat the bread of the presence. It was unlawful. <laughs> it was unlawful according to the Old Covenant. Yet, it seems like they are judging so quickly 12 men in front of them before discerning and asking the Lord, what happened here? Was it lawful or was it not lawful that David took this? Why? You know, asking these questions and seeking it from God that they might know and have actual understanding into why it was also okay for the disciples to pick heads of grain on the Sabbath. The fact that they had neglected one meant that they could not understand the other and misinterpreted and misunderstood the situation as well. There was this neglect there. Jesus then points to the creative purpose. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. Man is not meant to serve the Sabbath. Jesus, at one point in the Scripture, He describes the Pharisees and the scribes as tying up heavy loads and putting them on people and not lifting a single finger to help those people lift that load. And as we walk in the ways of the Pharisees, 
maybe not fully in our lives, but perhaps in parts of our lives, that's what happens. There's this heavy load that comes. And we begin to serve the Sabbath, not the Sabbath serve us. We begin to serve the law of God, not the law of God serve us in the way that the law of God is given to bring us life and life to the full. So the purpose of the Sabbath was to give man rest, not so that man could follow all the laws of the Sabbath, spot on. But the purpose in God creating man and then giving man the Sabbath was so that there could be rest. And who created both? It was God. Therefore, Jesus is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Now we're going to the last scene. Struggling for another word. Anyone got another word? I'm, I'm, I haven't found the right word for this. Last scene. All right, we'll run with that. No one's given me any words. Sorry? Encounter. The last encounter in this scene. That means something different. Anyway, so in this last encounter, um, we see earlier um, in chapter 2 that at one point um, the Pharisees are thinking things in their hearts and the Scripture says he knows what they were thinking in their hearts. And although Mark doesn't say it here, that he knows what they were thinking in their hearts, we can see that he does through how he acts. It's very deliberate, very intentional. He knows that they're looking for something to accuse him. They're looking to accuse him about healing on the Sabbath. And he very deliberately gets the man up in front of them and then asks them the questions. He knows what they're planning and what they desire to do, what they're hoping And yet, this is amazing because Jesus is demonstrating a love that casts out fear. You see, he's about to do this action of healing this man, which, if he does, is going to cause a number of people to go off and plot his death. Yet, he continues to follow through, showing that he's actually not afraid of the outcome of people plotting his death, but he's more focused on this man with a withered hand who cannot open it and seeing it open because he loves him and he wants that man to have an open hand that he can use well. Um, 1 John 4.18 is capturing what is happening here in the life of Jesus. And uh, this verse, Doiny actually got engraved for me on my wedding ring. I'll read it to you in Romanian, which is what it's in. Dragosta is godneste frica, un Ioan capodu patro versetur optispe. It says this in 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Jesus was not afraid of the outcome of people going and plotting his death. I don't know if anyone here has ever had someone plot their death or had an action hinging on someone going and plotting their death. I don't know how you would act if you recoil from doing that action, but you can see that the love of Christ is so strong for this man. He wants him to have a hand that is healed, that he carries through with the action in a way not caring about the consequences. Let's get back to Mark here. So, Jesus, he then 
when he asks this question, he's, um, in verse 4, he says, it's not lawful, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And what was their response? They're silent. They do not answer. Because to speak out, they would have condemned themselves. And it's like there's this moment being offered to them by Christ, saying, why don't you let go of it? Why don't you let go of your anger? Why don't you let go of your frustration, of your envy, of your feeling threatened by me? Isn't it better to do good on the Sabbath? Of course it is. And there's this sort of opportunity thrown out, let go, let go of it. But they silently hold on deep within their hearts, not saying a single thing. Say, I'm going to hold on to this. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And then he healed them there. When we hold on to things like that, that God is asking us to release and he's giving us opportunity for, it grieves him and makes him angry. Why? Why hold on? What are you going to gain? The grief of, do you know that the, the, the pain and the, the suffering, the hurt that's going to come from you holding on to that, not only in your own life, but in the lives of others? And Jesus is capturing all of this in that one moment as he looks out upon them and he's seeing this and he's filled with this grief and this anger at their hardness of heart. I'm going to hold on to this. I'm going to keep silent. I'm going to carry through what I have in my heart to do. We now sort of come into, I feel what is really a beautiful part of this passage. And again, Jesus is our example, not an exception. Jesus, he demonstrates that he loves the life of this man more than his own. He loves the life of the man with the withered hand more than his own. He's prepared to go and heal this man that he might be able to take that cup and drink from it, that he might be able to do up his shoelaces, not that he had them back then probably, do up his sandals, to put on his cloak more easily, to you know, perhaps caress his wife, to hold the face of his children. He loves that man and he wants that for that man, so much so that he's prepared to do that and prepared that other people go and plot his death when he does that. The Pharisees, by contrast, they love their own lives more than the life of that man. They're wanting their own preservation, their own glory, their own um, desires to be fulfilled. They're not willing to let go of what they want in their own lives in order to see, actually, this man be healed. In some ways, they were probably desiring that Jesus healed that man so that they could have something against him in the wicked places of their hearts. This, uh, we sung uh, this morning, there's no one like you, God. And I just believe that more and more, the more I get to know the Lord, there is none like God. There is no man that has walked the earth, only Jesus Christ who is like him because he is God. And he has given us new birth that we might be like God and be able to walk that out. Because without him, that's our heart, the heart of the Pharisees. But with him, 
we manifest by faith increasingly the life of Christ, the life of God, where we're able to let go of our own lives, you know, and to do an action that other people are going to say, good, I finally got something against him. Finally got something against him. Let me close with this um, in Mark chapter 8, where Jesus says this, verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's the calling of the disciple. To love others, to love God, even more than our own lives, that we're prepared to lay down our lives for the sake of others, to bring healing, hope, restoration, all the things that the kingdom of God is and to let go within that the kingdom of God comes within. Let me pray. Truly, Lord, truly there is none like you. The more we get to know you, Father, the more we see, yes, I don't see people like that around. I don't see people bearing that characteristic. I don't see people acting that way. I don't see people expressing that kind of love. I don't see people um, uh, judging justly as you do. I don't see people coming with humility as you do. Yet we have received all of these things in Christ, Lord. In heaven, Lord, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And when you look at us, you see Christ. Lord, here on earth, do you perceive anything different but Christ? I don't believe. May our perception, Lord, may we put faith in your perception increasingly of us that we would walk out the way that you've intended us to walk. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Amen.